Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit podcast. I'm Chris O'Fault, the editor of the Toolkit. And one of the things that we're going to be doing with this podcast, we're going to be talking to some of the best filmmakers working today and learning how they make films, how they write scripts, how they approach shooting, um, who their influences were, how their career started. And uh, we're so lucky because our first guest today is the great Iris Sachs. Um, Iris' new film, Little Men, uh, tells the story of... uh, two boys who become fast friends, Jake and Tony, uh, when Tony's grandfather dies and he moves into his father, uh, grandfather's building. But, you know, things get complicated when Tony's parents raise the rent on Jake's mother, who runs the uh, struggling dress shop downstairs. Uh, and it's a perfect example of what Ira does with all of his movies. He takes these issues from from life and from the world, these societal issues, and he perfectly folds them into the, the script. And so that's one thing that we're really going to cover today is how he how he builds issues into his script successfully, where so many independent filmmakers struggle with that. We're also going to talk about uh, why he doesn't rehearse actors and also about the community that he's built here in New York uh, around uh, queer art film. And what was interesting about this is it's not just a community that he's built and he's mentored a whole generation of of queer artists here in the city, but it's how how important it is to him as a filmmaker and what it's meant to his career. So I'm really hoping you enjoy this. Uh, Ira Sachs, our first guest. This clash between different races, between different cultures, um, between people of different classes, kind of built around this issue of, of real estate and gentrification. And, and you, you crafted such a human story around mm-hmm. that, that issue. And I'm just assuming, uh, I, I read this morning that you've lived here since 1984. I'm assuming this had to stem from, from personal experience and things that you've seen. Sure. Um, yeah, well... For, for me, cities are always in change. So in a way, the dramas that I'm discovering are how, how that takes place. And, and, and I try to be kind of um, keep my eyes wide open, meaning that I want to be very observant and considering of all the different elements that are involved in, in that change. I also don't want to be nostalgic about it. I don't want to be soft uh, on the truth as best I can. I moved to New York full-time in, in 88. Uh, I graduated from college, and I moved to Smith Street in Brooklyn. Uh, and I was a white college kid coming in a U-Haul to a primarily Italian neighborhood at that time. Um, Smith Street was Dominican um, for the most part. And so uh, it was a, on the corner that I lived on Smith and DeGraw, it was really a crux of these different communities trying to all live together. And I will say... I, I got there in 88. There were three social clubs on the corner that I moved into, and, and by early 90s, they were all three gone, the Dominican social clubs, because um, there wasn't space anymore. So so the stories that you find in that corner were, were really inspiring for little men. And so how do you take something like a societal issue like this and, you know, I, I say this because I see a lot of independent films, and a lot of independent filmmakers are are trying to have a conversation about the things that are going on in the world. And I often find when they try to tackle a societal issue, um, then to be failed simply because they're not baked into the story or the filmmaking. And I feel the exact opposite of, I mean, we could be, we could be talking about Love is Strange here as well. Um, I find the exact opposite of with your story. So I'm wondering, what's the starting point? How do you, how do you take those observations and, and fold them into a script? For me, uh, 
and I and I, I do teach now and, and and younger filmmakers and I'm and something that I literally am always thinking while I'm on set, which is I never want to point. I never want if if at any point I, I, I feel that that I'm trying to draw attention or underline something about a character or a piece of dialogue is doing that for me, then I try to lift it out because I want everything to emerge really from character and from story. In this case, we, we began with the idea of, uh, of the plot of the film. Uh, we had seen Mauricio Zacharias, my co-writer, and I had seen two films by Ozu. The first was called I, I Was Born But. The second, he remade his own film in the 50s called Good Morning. And they're both about kids who go on strike mm-hmm. against their parents. And we thought that that would be a really good um, plot for a story. It, it's kind of the, the log line of this film. And then we begin to sort of build on that idea from, from our life experience and from things that we share with each other. In this case, Mauricio's family, um, he's from Rio. He lives here in New York. But um, while we started to work on Little Men, his family was going through an eviction process with a woman there who um, they owned the store and she was the shopkeeper and she had stopped paying rent. And I was hearing new chapters every time we, we met at a coffee shop on 23rd Street, a new peace would come in and I kept thinking this is really really dramatic and also there's two sides to the story I know the woman has a side and I'm hearing the side of, of, of Mauricio's family so that became part of our story it felt like a good reason for these kids to get in trouble with their parents and cause that strike and, and in this case they stopped speaking so I guess what I'm saying is that I try to we, we have ideas but we're actually working really on character and story and, and trying to, to achieve the things that those things demand as, as dramaturgs, as film writers, as screenwriters, and as storytellers. It really strikes me also that um, for each of these characters, the choices that they have to make, it's kind of baked into that, right? In the sense that the conflict in this is also that you've built between these two families is coming from, from that issue, right? There's a kind of um, moral ambiguity to the decisions that need to be made in the film, which I think are what give the film its suspense, if that, if that word can be used. Um, someone saw the film in, in Los Angeles last week, and they told me it was a nail-biter. <laughs> and I think that's because you don't know where to place yourself as an audience member in terms of which side um, you identify with. And that was very consciously constructed in the sense that if we're doing a, a fight about gentrification in real estate in New York, there's sort of an obvious, you could make a really, really bad and really, really rich mm-hmm. kind of villain who owns everything, and then the poor working person. And we, we, in a way, made everything modulated to the middle. So mm-hmm. we have a, one middle-class family sort of fighting another middle-class family. In the sense so that you as a writer are identifying with each of the characters in their situations, never... Well, that's, I think, what I always hope to do and try to where I position myself as a filmmaker. There's a, there's a great quote by Jean Renoir in Rules of the Game, and uh, it's, the, it's, it's, it's a line of dialogue, and it's the, the terrible thing is that everyone has their reasons. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of where you... Tr- the terrible, terrible is the word there that mm-hmm. seems to me most um, provocative because that's where drama is, is the terror of decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, going back to, um, you know, I've spoken to a lot of filmmakers who, when they're talking about getting started off, talk about your class. Um, and I, I imagine this is something that you see um, kind of firsthand as a teacher. 
What are and I know uh, you know I used to teach at, uh, at Wesleyan and I I saw the same thing. People that were excited about film, but also so excited about wanting to say something about the world or build the issues that are in the world into their stories. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious. I don't know if that's something you've experienced at NYU. Um, but what are some of the, the most common mistakes that you see with that in screenplays, and, and what advice do you have for them? Gosh, you know, for me, the biggest advice I have for my students is not to take their teachers too seriously. <laughs> um, really, I feel like once you hand over the right to make your own authentic choices and instinctual choices around a work of art, then then you water down what you're doing and you and you lose direction. It's why when a film is taken over by a, a bond company, for example, nobody's happy. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants the filmmaker to lose direction. So um, I'm always encouraging students not to to listen (laughs) in a certain way. I I am also, I think, I try to give people permission to to value their own experience, which is harder than it seems to do. I think people often feel like their stories aren't interesting enough or important enough. And and I'm, I'm always like, make a film about your mom. Really just, just, just start, who's the most interesting person you know? And like, go shoot them because something about that will be full of density. You can't fake that density when you're when you're making something. So, um, in a way, that's what I have to remind myself. And I think the challenge is when you're taking that work and trying to enter into the marketplace. How does that work? That's very personal. Find a space that's meaningful. And in a way, I've just I've I've come to see that the the shop in Little Men is a sort of metaphor for that kind of cinema. That it's hard to hold on to that shop, mm-hmm. but that there's value in it. That's one thing I actually wanted to talk about. Really, and I, I don't know if this is correct or not, but it seems with um, the last two films, um, and I, I hope this is true, I'm sure it's not easy, I'm sure someone's not just cutting you a check and you're making the film, but it seems as if you have found a way to have a regular output mm. like this seems like a good like once every two years you're able to to bring one of these out and i'm sure once again it's not easy to make it but is that is there something now where it's a little bit less of a struggle um you know you're going to make one and and you you can you've got your footing as an independent filmmaker it's always a struggle but it is certainly less of one than it has been at other stages of my life i think that i um you know, sustainability is always an issue. I think for my generation of independent as well as queer filmmakers, very hard to stay in the game and be able to, to tell these kinds of stories over and over again. Um, I've gotten a lot of support from sort of a, a community that I've been involved in creating. Mm-hmm. Uh, I run a nonprofit. I'm the executive director of, of an organization called Queer Art. And I we run a series called Queer Art Film and we run another program called Queer Art Mentorship. And, and, and it wasn't really my reason to begin to make these things, but I've actually found that I've, in doing so, I've, I've, I'm supported by the community that I've created. I, I do find that, that I, I now have a group of people who believe in what I'm doing, and I've also created a brand, to, be, to mm-hmm. be factual, in the sense that there's some idea and there's some trust in that brand, and that it will have a viability. I actually wanted to talk, I was going to save this for the end, but I wanted to talk about uh, queer art film, because uh, when your name comes up, a lot of people do talk about um, both um, your role as a mentor and as a community builder. Mm-hmm. And 
and, and so, I mean, I'd love to talk about that program a little bit because I believe it's grown. I mean, I know there's the monthly IFC screenings, which I'd love for you to talk about, but also uh, a kind of a generational kind of mentorship program that's kind of stemmed from it. I, you know, we, I moved to New York in the late 80s, and it was the height of the AIDS epidemic. And uh, many of the generation that was just before me disappeared, and there was a decimation of, of that generation, particularly... Um, in New York and, and, and for me specifically among artists and um, I'm always trying to I always found as a filmmaker I was trying to invent my own wheel and it took a lot of work and if I hadn't had a certain kind of fortitude which I think I do have um, then I don't think I'd still be making these kind of films and so I've, I've tried to create something which is, serves as a kind of ballast against that the absence of that community as well as the absence of of, of a capital to make uh, queer stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I like to talk to people. I mean, I think that it, these things go in both directions, and there's this sense of, of, of your ability to take risks grows when you have a community of people to support you. I mean, mm-hmm. IndieWire's existence, Sundance's existence, these things are all entities which somehow make the work that I do seem more possible. When you're saying that, I instantly thought of your short last address, which is uh, everybody should check out. I I saw it on Vimeo again this morning. It it really speaks to the loss of a a generation, of a generation of artists. And Ira made a a film where um, he visited the last known address of of a lot of... um, um, uh, queer artists who died in of the AIDS epidemic, basically up until I think to, up until you made the movie, right in two thousand seven. Correct. And it's I mean you know all of these people, but to see them all, yeah, and it's all downtown, it's all West Village, and to see their that community is just gone. You know, I think the thing is, I I, I got a lot from making that film, um, including I took control of the economics of my of my work. You mm-hmm. know? So I'd been working at that point for three years on a film called The Goodbye People, and I had a big indie cast and all these names, and I couldn't raise a dollar in a three-year period. It was 2008, so it was a particularly bad time. And then I made Last Address um, because my students were making short films, and, and I spent $2,500, and I made it at the top of my aesthetic pot- potential as an artist. And it turned out well, and it had value. Um, and I kind of have stayed in that direction, which is that I don't look outside of, of, my, of my own sort of... I, I definitely look outside of my own pocketbook, but I look, don't look beyond... Uh, in, and I certainly don't look to Hollywood mm-hmm. to, to allow me to tell the stories that I tell. Would you consider, though... Um, I don't know, someone comes along, wants to do a TV series, someone wants to do a bigger film, or are you... With, with, you know, I'm thinking Love is Strange and, and I think Little Men, too, are really going to find an audience. Um, are, is this, are you want, do you want to stay in this, this realm? Um, yes and no. I mean, yes, I do want to stay in this realm. And I'm, I'm, Mauricio and I are beginning a, a new feature. Um, but I'm also writing something for HBO and I'm oh. writing something for Paramount. And, you know, so I'm... I'm open to new experiences. I'm never sure that I'm the right person for them to hire, to be honest, because I think what I what I offer tends to be very much my own, um, and and I'm not sure it's for mass consumption, but we'll we'll see. I'm writing a film about Montgomery Clift, 
uh, for HBO and Matt Bomer, and then I'm adapting a book. Oh, he'll be perfect. Yeah, he'll be good, right? Yeah. And then I'm um, adapting Tim Murphy's book, Christadora, which is coming out this week um, as a miniseries for Paramount. Oh, wow. But we'll see if those, you know, <laughs> uh, it's times keep changing. Um, I want to. My understanding is that you don't rehearse actors. Is that is what is the how do you work with actors? Uh, I you know Sidney Pollack, the director, was the executive producer on on Forty Shades of Blue, and he was the man. I'd come from a theater background, and he was the guy who told me that I didn't have to rehearse, and it was a great light bulb went off in my head because theater, where I'd come from, you really need to repeat yourself over and over again on stage. Uh, film, you actually just want to capture something that's going to happen once and for the moment in which the camera is on. So what I've found is that um, I want as little conversation around um, subtext and motivation. I want there not to be a dialogue between myself and the actor that the actor is thinking about when they arrive at the set and perform. I want what, to, what happens on screen to be between the two actors in the scene. So I kind of try to disappear. That said, when you shoot a film, you're actually working for you know four or five hours or eight hours or whatever on one scene. So there's forms of rehearsal that are going on in there. They're just not predetermined before the day of the shoot. So um, with Greg Kinnear, I was just with him in, in Los Angeles, and, and he's really wonderful in, in, in the film, and he's such a natural actor. He said the process for him felt like when he arrived at the set, everything was there, mm-hmm. and so what was being asked of him was to was to be present. And then what comes from that, you don't know. That's the unexpected, and that's the excitement of shooting. So he's taking from the script what's there, like what you need for him to have is in. The, it's is the it? script, but it's also the world that I build around him. So, for example, at the beginning of Little Men, there's a there's a uh, kind of gathering after a funeral. And um, and he's a character, and he lives uh, who's inherited his father's house. He's in a, a neighborhood that he grew up in. It's in Bay Ridge or Bensonist, Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. That room is filled with faces that are from that neighborhood. So so we've done our work. We've spent eight weeks, two months. Well, that's the same eight weeks and two months. But we we've spent the time to kind of fill that room with the faces and the people who will make it as vivid as possible. So Greg doesn't have to imagine anything. Mm-hmm. Um, the script does a lot of work for, for the actors, but what I like to uh, encourage is a kind of emotional improvisation that you actually don't know how you're going to respond to things, but the script is there to kind of carry you someplace. Then there are a few scenes in the film, like the acting class in the film, which is a scene with Michael Barbieri, who's a young um, kid from New York who, who plays the role of Tony and that scene is fully improvised mm-hmm. I would say usually 10% of my movies are improvised and that that element sort of seeps into the rest of the movie and you begin to feel the whole thing is is really um, in the world and so even with the kids in the movie yeah. I think I don't know how old they're they, how, they, how, they were 12 and 13 they were 12 and 13 I mean, they're incredibly talented, and I, I met one of them, and he's already more accomplished at 13 than most people are at, at 30. He's got like a short film and, and, and the whole nine. And, and, but, um, but nonetheless, I mean, there's only a certain amount of experience that someone is bringing, bringing to, to set at, at that age. And so, but it's, the same, it's no different with Greg Kinnear than it is, it is with the boys. In this case, it, you know, because I haven't done a movie that's, that had the protagonists were this age, and so I'd never, it, the real leads. 
And it wasn't different, ultimately. Yeah. That, that what, I, what I want is to cast actors who can bring some part of themselves to the role mm-hmm. and who have the craft that, that means that they're going to be good actors. I mean, I couldn't be in a movie. I would be a terrible actor. But, but the craft is not something that I think I can teach. And I think that's true whether they're 8 years old or 80. The craft has to, has to be inherent to the project. And is that also part of it is, is that the, the casting in and of itself, they either embody the character or they don't? They're either... Um, you know, I almost never ask actors to transform, so I would say less they embody the character, and it's more that they, they meet the character halfway. Mm-hmm. So something's on script, and, and something is in them, and that somehow those thing, two things combine that you can't even tell the difference when you're watching the movie. But I'll make some adjustments. So, for example, in this film, um, the character of Tony, one of the boys in the script, was a um, d- uh, practiced capoeira. Um, Brazilian martial arts. Michael Barbieri, who played Tony, uh, we, we sent him to a couple of capoeira classes and it was absurd. And that wasn't going to work. That's the one where they're like on their hands. It's very and hard. The slaves were like using dance as a way to like yeah, build a revolt. And... Exactly. The whole revolt thing. It wasn't going to happen uh, over over a summer. But he'd been, <laughs> he'd been studying at Lee Strasberg and, uh, since he was nine years old. And um, and so he was studying to be an actor. So, so the character became a kid who was studying to be an actor. Mm-hmm. And you say improvise, but I, I have a sense in watching your films um, that they're blocked, that there's something very yeah. precise. I don't sense a looseness. No. And kind of your approach to filming, I mean, the word I think people would use is minimalist, but I, I think of it as more as... There doesn't seem to be a lot of setups, and you seem to be very precise in where the camera is. And I mean, what 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 happens in the filming process for you, and in terms of the camera of bringing and bringing your story to life? Well, you say minimalist, but with Little Men, I actually think of it as modernist in some uh-huh. ways. That there's a simplicity, and that there is a um, specificity to to um, to the image mm-hmm. and to the storytelling, which is unembellished but precise and also emotional. There is an emotion to 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 the image. Um, I would agree that my films. I mean, as I said, my films are just I would say ten percent improvised, and you can generally tell which scenes those those are, mm-hmm. and they tend to be group scenes. And, right, and right. sometimes when I'm shooting. Um, something won't be going right in a dialogue and, and someone will say you sure you don't want to like let it loose and let it go and I'm always like it's always tempting cause, but I know from experience that for me that's never the answer mm-hmm. that um, more is not always more and that really something else is probably not working in the film and that's where bro- blocking becomes so significant mm-hmm. sometimes what needs to happen is you need to like slow down that scene or move an actor over here and then it comes alive but it doesn't tend to be a problem of script Mm-hmm. It tends to be a problem of, um, of of craft and construction that you're working on, and that's part of and, and so finding that preciseness is is also part of the blocking process with them. It is. It's a part of every process. This film, I would say that when I hear, think of the word precision, I'm, I, I think more of of the editing that was involved. It needed to be. I worked with Afonso Gonzalez and Molly Goldstein on this film, and um, I've worked with Afonso on all my features so it's been a long career and Molly brought in some amazing new ideas and um, this film had a kind of gym-like quality that meant we needed to get it to its exact um, without being airless we needed to, to to refine and refine and refine until the film began to breathe and, mm-hmm. to, and to shine 
And so that um, was the precision that I hope that I hope is in the final cut. You, you brought up Ozu. I'm wondering whether filmmakers you're kind of in conversation with and that you're drawing inspiration from. Um, Piala, Maurice Piala is, is someone that I, for the last 20 years, I think I, I was thinking, uh, because I've been watching MoMA's doing this retrospective and I've been watching all the films and I sort of feel like I began with Cassavetes, I got to Loach, and now for the last 20 years I've been in a conversation with Piala uh, in terms of, of how to, and, and I'll never beat him. Uh, he, I will always be less than, <laughs> you know, but he, he continues to inspire, and, and Anoza Moore and uh, uh, his first film, L'Enfance New, Naked Childhood, were both very influential for mm-hmm. this movie. Um, as was Jean Eustache, um, uh, My Little Loves, mm-hmm. Mes Petites Amoureuses, um, was is a beautiful film about childhood, told with such visual precision. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I, I would say that Ozu continues to be, for Mauricio and I, a filmmaker who gives us permission to focus on the intimacy of everyday life, and, and believe that we can find something monumental there if we, if we work hard enough. I, I caught up on my uh, Pila education with the retro that was up in uh, Queens, I think it was a few months ago. Mm-hmm. It seems like that's something that's now kind of up on an exalted level for you. What is it about him that's really, that you're reaching for? I think it's the um, energy of, of, of the encounters between people, the intimacy of, of those scenes, the danger emotionally, um, and the tra- honesty that I think the films have. Um, it's, it's raw and rich, and, um, and, I, and, I, and I believe it, it documents, almost like Proust, um, the feeling of what it means to be alive. I think we should leave it there. Ira Sachs, thank you so much for coming in. And everybody, you need to go see um, Little Men. It opens this Friday. It, it's open, what's the, it's, this Friday is Los Angeles and New York, is that right? Uh, Friday the 5th, it opens in New York, and then on the 12th, it opens in Los Angeles Perfect. and other cities. All right, so New Yorkers, you're going to go this Friday. Thank you so much, Ira. Thanks, Chris. You're, it was a good first time for you. 